welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, 2020 is upon us. Where are the flying cars? Surely the future officially begins now. Okay, just brief housekeeping here. The Waking Up app is now unlocked until the end of the year. So if you're interested in trying it, or you're already using it, and you want to recommend it to others, now's a very good time because all of the content is available until New Year's Day. And I hope you enjoy it. As always, if you have any issues with the app, please contact support at wakingup.com, and they will sort you out. And today's conversation is appearing both on the app and the podcast. That doesn't usually happen, but sometimes there's a conversation that seems relevant to both audiences, and this is one of those times. Today I'm speaking with Judson Brewer. Judd is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center, an Associate Professor in Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University. He's also a research affiliate at MIT. And before that, he held research and teaching positions at Yale University and at the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness. Judd is also the founder of a digital therapeutics platform, Mind Sciences, and the author of the book, The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked, and How We Can Break Bad Habits. And in this episode, we talk about mindfulness and addiction, and the nature of reward-based learning, the neuroscience of craving, real-time neuroimaging, smoking cessation through mindfulness, the difference between dopamine-driven reward and real happiness, working with anxiety, and other topics. And now, without further delay, I bring you Judson Brewer. I am here with Judd Brewer. Judd, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So uh, give us uh, the potted biography of your um, intellectual interests and what you're doing professionally now before we dive in. I'm an addiction psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. I'm the director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center and the founder of Mind Sciences, which makes uh, app-based mindfulness training programs for habit change. So what is your background in meditation? How did you get interested in it and what sort of training have you done? I started meditating my first day of medical school through the background of uh, suffering. <laughs> I can, mm-hmm. You know, with that 10,000 hours rule, I, I certainly achieved that early on in my life with regard to 10,000 hours of suffering. So I can say I'm, a, an, I'm an expert there, but started meditating. Yeah, I was really struggling at the beginning of medical school, figured it was a, you know, starting something new in my life. And I started meditating to see what that would be like and to see if it could help with some of the stress and started practicing. I I didn't know that there were different traditions. (laughs) So I joined a local sangha in St. Louis where I was going to medical school, which turned out to be led by first by a, a Zen practitioner and then a Theravadan practitioner. And then I found a, a teacher in, you know, in the Midwest and started practicing Theravadan, you know, the Theravadan tradition and have largely focused there over the last 20 plus years. Most recently, I've been studying with Joseph Goldstein, who 
has, you know, an eclectic style is studied with a bunch of different teachers. And I've also been doing some collaboration with Dan Brown, who's more in the ter- in the Tibetan lineage. So I've been learning mm-hmm. a fair amount of Dzogchen, both for, you know, from a practice perspective, but also to help make sure that the research that we do is accurate. Nice. And when you went into medical school, did you know immediately that you wanted to go into psychiatry or was that a, a later epiphany? Uh, let's say later, as in it was the last thing that I thought I was going to do mm-hmm. when you I was in this MD-PhD program where you do a couple of years of medical school and then you do your PhD for long enough to forget everything that you've learned in medical school. Mm-hmm. And then you go back into the wards. And so when I went back into the wards for the, you know, my third year of medical school, I, I figured I would do psychiatry as a way to remember how to interview patients. <laughs> right. And then I realized that these, you know, what my patients were talking about was was really using the same language as the as the Buddhists, and also that uh, psychiatry was in tremendous need of good treatments, especially for addictions. And that was that seems to be a a sweet spot of the Buddha, you know, craving and clinging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 lens through which the Buddha looked at the whole problem of unenlightenment is really one of craving and its consequences. And and there's a, a very helpful analogy drawn here between addiction and these ancient methods of practice. And you do this in your book, The Craving Mind. So let's talk about that. Maybe that's the, the right way in. Before we get to the, the esoterica of how mindfulness can help, what is addiction and how should we be thinking about it? I like the simple definition of continued use despite adverse consequences. I learned that in residency training and the American Society of Addiction Medicine just came out with an, a definition that very much parallels that, you know, continued use despite adverse consequences, which not only points out that we can be addicted to chemicals, but we can be addicted to behaviors ranging from, you know, our cell phones, these weapons of mass distraction to thinking. We can be addicted to our own thoughts or our own views. Right. I sense that many people will balk at that definition. It seems somehow, or can seem somehow, too capacious. Are we really saying, or do we want to say, that addiction to something like cigarettes is precisely on the same continuum as addiction to smartphones or thinking or shopping or gambling? I mean, isn't there some significance to the fact that in one case, someone could be you know, using a chemical, the cessation of which would lead to withdrawal? Or is there a biochemistry that kind of holds people hostage in a way that behavioral addictions don't quite? Or is it really just you know, once you get in there, it's just neurophysiology, whether you have exogenous compounds on board or not, and really it's the same mechanism. I think there are two aspects here. One is that we can look at physical dependence, where we, you know, certain, you know, if you jack the brain with dopamine, which every known drug of abuse has been shown to do, you know, it's going to lead to receptor modulation. And that, for example, with alcohol or nicotine or you know, opioids or whatever, you're going to see, you know, receptor up and down regulation and that take, can take a while to normalize. So I think that piece hasn't been, you know, it's that, that 
physical dependence piece is it can be separated from the continued use despite adverse consequences. Mm. And so I think that's where the playing field gets leveled. Somebody can be drinking alcohol and not have consequences. Somebody else can be drinking alcohol and can be having severe consequences. Somebody can right. be using their smartphone, same thing. You know, they could be texting while driving and get into an accident while somebody else uses their smartphone responsibly, let's say. Right, right. I guess there's a little wiggle room in the definition or, or in the who is defining the adverse consequences, right? I mean, there are probably people who, by any outside estimation, are addicted to whatever, their smartphones or gambling, and yet they have a problem admitting that they have a problem. Yeah, and I think we see this in psychiatry where it's helpful to get information not only from the person who might be referred to us or come in to see me as a psychiatrist, but also from, you know, collateral where, you know, it's family, friends, coworkers, whatnot. And like you're pointing out, somebody might not think they have a problem, no matter what, whatever the substance or the behavior is, but it might be causing significant adverse consequences to all the people around them. And so mm. I think of despite adverse consequences, meaning not just what somebody thinks is happening, but really having as, mu as much of an objective perspective as possible. And that includes many points of view. Yeah. And perhaps the most subtle addiction here, and, and, and many people, again, will find it strange to be conjoining these concepts, addiction and thinking. But you mentioned one being addicted to thinking. And this is really something that you encounter when you, you when you try to meditate, especially intensively on silent retreat, you just the automaticity of being lost in discursive thought, the fact that it's it's our default state, despite our most heroic efforts to pay attention. And in this case, we've you know deranged our lives and, and gone into silence with the goal of paying attention moment to moment, and yet the thoughts don't stop. How do you think about thinking in light of this sort of addiction framing and and just, I guess, the underlying mechanics of reward-based learning and processing? Well, I guess I should say, hi, my name is Judd. I'm a thinkaholic. <laughs> How many days sober do you have? <laughs> None. <laughs> I'm, I'm on day one. My, You know, I remember my first seven-day silent meditation retreat. This is when I was in medical school. And by day three, I was crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of the, treat man the retreat manager because I didn't think I could do this. I could pay attention to my breath, you know, because I... That's, that's always encouraging a psychiatrist <laughs> to weep openly on the shoulder of a stranger. <laughs> yes. So I think in terms of, you know, what I've seen from my own experience and also what I've now begun to understand scientifically, you know, and this is also is how mindfulness comes in, you know, there's this idea that we can just just control ourselves. And thinking is a great example of really not having any control because we can't just stop our thoughts. Uh, we might be able to create conditions where the mind is quiet, but if we just get up there and, you know, hold up the stop sign and say, okay, okay, thoughts, you know, take a break. They come at us, you know, like zombies, you know, yeah. and it becomes the thought apocalypse. So, you know, that's one, I think, in terms of addiction, I, I also remember being on, you know, I was on a month on retreat, and 
it took me a full day or so to realize that I would be having these thoughts and they'd be saying, oh, this is this is a great experiment. If you do not write this down, you know, you will forget it and then it'll be lost. And and I would, you know, get up from the cushion and then write it down and then, you know, sit down again. And then the next, you know, world's greatest thought came up and then do the same thing. And I was like, wait a minute, this is this is my mind, not just not wanting to meditate. <laughs> yeah. So I think in terms of the looking at this from an addictive perspective, it might be helpful just to even think about what the general framework of reward-based learning is, because that can also explain where addiction can move, you know, not just from alcohol and the typical ones, but to even to thinking and views and things like this. So there's a, you know, there's a very simple framework that has three components, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. And this framework is set up to help us remember where food is and how to avoid danger. So basically, if you see food, that's the trigger. You eat the food, that's the behavior. And then your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate, where you found it. There's the reward or quote unquote reward. It's from a brain perspective. It's basically, it lays down context dependent memory. Hmm. Same for avoiding danger. You see the danger, you run away. And then the reward is that you're you're alive to tell your buddies, don't go over there. That's kind of dangerous. So that's the basic framework for reward-based learning. Now, there are a couple of important components that really explain a lot of modern-day maladies that we don't quite understand with this. Reward-based learning is based on rewards, not on the behavior itself. And I mention that because in modern day, we try everything from dieting to trying to make our minds silent when we're meditating. But we use the brute force, brute force method where we're just like, okay, just stop. That's what I was trying to do. I used to sweat through t-shirts in the middle of winter at this center, at the, the Insight Meditation Society up in Massachusetts, you know, where it's cold. Mm. <laughs> I'd sweat through t-shirts trying to force myself not to think and to just stay concentrated on my breath. Well, this is the same thing that people do when they're trying to lose weight and they use a traditional diet, which just says, you know, make sure you eat salad instead of cake. Well, you know, it makes sense. It's a, the formula is correct, but that's not how our minds work. So the reward-based learning reminds us that it's not the behavior, it's the reward, how rewarding a behavior is. And that's what's going to drive future behavior. And Understanding this was really key, not only for my lab in developing, you know, app-based mindfulness training programs, for example, but also understanding the, the underlying neural mechanisms of what was going on. And also, personally, it really helped me <laughs> be able to, to pay attention to my breath or pay attention to an object of meditation rather than trying to force it. And it's also more the anticipation of reward than it is the actual landing on the object of desire, right? It's both, actually. So the dopamine fire is the first time we get a reward. And if it happens repeatedly, mm. that dopamine firing, and that's that anticipation piece that, that feels like, that dopamine firing shifts from receipt of reward to anticipation of reward. So it actually starts firing when we have a trigger or when we have a, a thought can be a trigger where we start thinking about getting that thing, it, it motivates us to get off the couch and go do that behavior. Because remember, this is all set up to motivate us to eat and to motivate us to run away from danger. 
So that anticipation piece is go do something. So you're saying that it's initially encoded by the actual reward, but if in future instances it starts prior to the reward, just when, when we're actually engaging the routine that would reliably deliver the reward? Yes. So for example, you know, the first, if I, and usually this has to do with unanticipated rewards. So if, if I'm, you know, walking down the street and suddenly I find, you know, a chocolate bar that, you know, it's my favorite chocolate bar, my brain says, oh, wow, that was a surprise. And that, oh, wow, surprise says, oh, you just, you just won the chocolate lottery. And so then the next time I walk down that street, my brain will say, oh, I wonder if there's another chocolate bar there. And so the trigger of the context that walking down that right. street says, oh, go look for chocolate. In your book, you draw an analogy between the cycle of learning, which is in the behaviorist literature, going back to Skinner, what was called operant conditioning. There's an analogy to draw there between that mechanism and the Buddhist framing of dependent origination. I don't know if you want to unpack that for us. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So dependent origination is reportedly what the Buddha was contemplating on the night of his enlightenment. Now, that sounds kind of important. <laughs> hmm. this, this is what the dude was, was contemplating, and then he became awakened, and he, he became enlightened. So I worked with a Pali scholar, uh, Jake Davis, because as I was studying dependent origination personally, I was studying behavior change you know, professionally as an addiction psychiatrist. And we're starting to see the importance of operant conditioning, which is basically that reward-based learning cycle that I talked about. And we looked at the parallels, and it was striking how similar these two frameworks were. There were slight differences in terminology in terms of, you know, some language that the Buddhists were using and some language that the behaviorists were using. But basically, it was the same process. And what it suggested was that, you know, the Buddha had basically discovered what we now think of in modern day as, you know, reward-based learning before paper had even been invented, you know. And, and this discovery in modern day science, just to put it in perspective, was so huge that Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize in the year 2000, showing that this process is con evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. So a mm. critically important concept, whether it was the Buddha becoming awakened or Eric Kandel getting his Nobel Prize, showing that this is a very, very fundamental learning process. So in the Buddhist framework, there's this capacity of the mind to notice the feeling valence of a stimulus. So you, you, you can notice whether something's pleasant or unpleasant, and craving follows from that. There's craving and identification with it. And, um, you know, I think we now know something about the neural correlates of these processes. What does your work tell you about what the brain is doing when we're feeling desire for a stimulus and that desire is made actionable because there's no distance between, you know, attention and the desire itself? Yes. So we, why don't we start at the, the Vedana, the pleasant and unpleasant aspect? In Buddhist terms, uh, Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, or sometimes neutral. In operant conditioning or modern-day psychology terms, you know, pretty similar terms are used. You know, something feels pleasant, something feels unpleasant. 
And what the what both frameworks show is that whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, both of them lead to a craving. So we want more of the pleasant and we want less of the unpleasant. So you can think of an anti-craving or a, a aversion. You know, we have a craving and aversion. And then that leads in in the Buddhist terminology to clinging or upadana, which can be also suggest a translation can be sustenance where we're we're fueling that fire of craving and by behaving we start to become identified with that behavior so if it's eating chocolate i can start to become identified with eating certain types of chocolate like dark chocolate versus milk chocolate or if i have a certain political propensity i could start becoming identified with a certain type of view or set of views where, you know, I am this versus not that. And the more we perform the behavior, whether it's eating chocolate or thinking, you know, this is the right view, the more we become identified with that. Now, interestingly, in ancient Buddhist terms, they called, they said that the cycle is perpetuated through ignorance. And then in modern day, I think of this as that cycle is perpetuated through, I, I'll, I use the term subjective bias. And so the term mm -hmm. ignorance and subjective bias, I would suggest are basically the same thing, meaning that we become biased based on our previous behaviors. So we're not seeing the world clearly. We're seeing it through these lenses of our previous behavior. So if I see chocolate, I'm going to see it through the lenses of, oh, I like or I don't like that type of chocolate based on my previous behavior. So the subjective bias, the Buddhist would suggest, is ignorance because we're not actually seeing clearly. You know, and, I, and I like the interpretation of the term vipassana, which literally means seeing clearly. It's as though we're taking off those subjective bias glasses. Yeah, there's an interesting connection here between the more creaturely levels of craving and wanting and identification and something that seems you know, far more recent an acquisition in evolutionary terms. You're talking about political views, right? So the, the fact that one's sense of identification, the, the sense of self, can be an emergent property of kind of contracting within the domain of either of these things, whether it's the taste of chocolate, the wanting of it, the preference for one form or another, and just holding to an opinion that one has entertained and become attached to. This can sound surprising, but just in, in evolutionary terms, we didn't add entirely new modules to the ape brain to become human, right? I mean, the only way we acquire new abilities is by extending the processing reach of structures that, you know, were already there. And so the same circuitry that's encoding, you know, disgust over being confronted by something toxic that you don't want to get into your mouth, it's that same processing that is underwriting moral intuitions and you know, even judgments of you know, the truth or falsity of ideas. From the side of experience in meditation, this really isn't surprising. I mean, you, you can feel in yourself the difference between identification, attachment, the sort of cramp of self around any of these things, you know, wanting another bite of cake. We've all had this experience of you're eating some dessert, which you're, you're very happy to, to be eating, 
and someone, usually your spouse, will ask for a bite of it when you're down to the last <laughs> bite, right? And you, you, know, you feel viscerally that something in you, some homunculus in you, has not budgeted for the possibility of having to give up that last bite. Your, your pleasure extended to the remaining bite. You would have happily perhaps given an earlier bite, but surely not the last one. That feeling of kind of emotional impediment, you know, that, that is tied in the middle of virtually everything that feels like me. Do we know much at this point about the underlying neuroanatomy of, of these processes? I'm glad you brought in these terms around, you know, contraction and, and you know, basically clinging, the, the, the closed down quality of experience. Because that's something that my lab has kind of serendipitously fallen into studying. And if you think about it from, a, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, fear, for example, feels contracting, right? And the idea is to make ourselves as small an object as possible, <laughs> protect our vital organs from whatever it is that's about to eat us. Now, that's very different than the feeling of, say, joy or connection, which feels much more expansive or even curiosity. So mm -hmm. just, just anchoring us on that, on that framework and that feeling of contraction versus expansion, my lab was studying experienced meditators. This is back in 2009, 10, 11, yeah, almost a decade ago, where we were just trying to understand what the basic brain activity looked like in experience versus novice meditators. And we were actually looking for convergence. So we studied a bunch of different types of practices. So we had people practice like a concentration practice, like breath awareness, a loving kindness practice, you know, more of a connection practice, and then a choiceless awareness practice where they were, you know, they were not focused on any particular object, but just whatever came into their awareness was the object of, of their awareness in that moment. And we looked to see what was common amongst those three meditation practices. And what we found was, was very striking. One was we didn't find a single brain region that was increased in activity in experience versus novice meditators, which was a little shocking to me. And I think mm. went against my primary hypothesis was that there must be some brain region activating because I'm sure working my ass off. <laughs> this is back before right. I really, you know, I was only 10 years into practice and still didn't have quite a, a clue about what force was like. But the other thing that we found was that there were particular brain regions that were deactivated in experience versus novice meditators. And these had to do with this network called the default mode network that has to do with self-referential processing. So when we take something personally, basically this network of brain regions gets activated. So for example, when, you know, let's use your example with the cake, you know, it's like, oh, I, I want that like last piece of cake and we're kind of holding on to it. We're, we're uh, clinging to it, so to speak. Also happens when we ruminate, uh, when we're depressed. It happens when we perseverate, when we're anxious, when we're worried about the future. So there are a bunch of different things that when we take them personally, when we're worried about the future, when we regret things in the past, when we want that piece of cake, they all activate the default mode network. And lo and behold, this same network was deactivated in experienced meditators. Mm. Now, is this, you know, I, I've spoken about the default mode network before mm. in this context. It, 
is the finding the same for the medial prefrontal cortex as the posterior cingulate, or are we mostly talking about the posterior cingulate for these deactivations? Yeah, it's a great question. We've mo- we've done most of our experiments in the posterior cingulate cortex, and that's because that was the strong the brain region that had the most deactivation and experienced versus novice meditators. And also, pragmatically, when we started doing real-time neurofeedback experiments, we didn't have the techniques to be able to give feedback from multiple brain regions at once. The mm-hmm. two are pretty highly correlated, but most of the work that we've done has been with the posterior cingulate. And there's also a theoretical reason for that, which is the medial prefrontal cortex part of the prefrontal cortex, which is a younger part of the brain, has been more linked to the conceptual sense of self, whereas the posterior cingulate cortex, and this was actually through some work that we'd done and others had done, seems to be more linked to an experiential sense of self and is also directly Mm. anatomically connected to brain regions involved in memory, like the hippocampus. So the posterior cingulate is what we've been focused on primarily, but a fair number of the studies have shown that the both are pretty intimately correlated. Mm. So we wanted to actually understand what this deactivation meant because there's a big issue in neuroimaging and neuroscience around reverse inference, where if you see a brain region activated, you assume that something is happening based on what other people have done in other experiments, but you can't make that assumption accurately because it could be doing something else and we just don't know it. So the best way to reduce that likelihood is to do real-time experiments where you can measure brain activity and show people their brain activity in real time while they're doing a particular task. In our case, we were having people meditate. And that way you can link up the subjective experience, their first-person subjective experience with their brain activity in real time and really know what's going on. So we did a bunch of these experiments with novice and experienced meditators, and we found something that was really striking, which was that this this activation in the posterior cingulate cortex was correlated not just with things like mind-wandering or craving, but it's the degree to which people get caught up in that experience. And we found this because not only were things like craving or mind wandering activating these brain regions, which other people had found before, but we found that other experiences were also activating it, such as when people were trying to meditate harder, as one person put it, you know, said, I tried to look at the, they were looking at the graph as an object of meditation. They said, I tried to be more aware of it or, or, or force it basically. And that actually induced a, an active increased activity or increased activation of the posterior cingulate cortex, whereas other people were reporting that the more they let go and stopped trying to do anything, the less their posterior cingulate was activated. So you mentioned that you, you gave people three different practices to do, and two of them were essentially mindfulness, but you know, one was to focus exclusively on the breath and the other was choiceless awareness, which is to say you just leave your attention wide open and notice whatever you notice. Were those different in terms of the activity of the posterior cingulate? They both showed deactivation in experience versus novice meditators, as in when people were focusing on that object, whether it's the breath or just anything coming into their awareness, the less they 
tried, the less they got caught up in, in doing and were just resting mm. in awareness, the more deactivated their posterior cingulate got. Right, right. You can feel this subjectively. I mean, this is the difference between feeling like the meditator, right, where you're strongly identified with the aiming of your attention. You're the locus of attention in the head, and you're now pointing attention strategically at the breath and trying to get closer to it and noticing the competition between doing that and the arising of each new thought, like a you know a wave breaking on the hull of a ship. And you're fighting to keep your attention on the object of meditation. That sets up a very, the classic sense of the self who is doing this practice. Whereas if you can recognize that you're not in control of anything, right? Everything is just appearing, whether it's the breath or a sound or a sensation, and you can just drop back and let awareness notice whatever it notices. And, and you can actually do this simply focused on the breath as well. I mean, you can just receive the breath as an appearance, not anticipate it, not struggle to get closer to it, just notice it as it appears. But it's that difference between really taking possession of it as a, a struggle and just dropping back and noticing that consciousness is simply the space in which everything is always already appearing. It's that difference in posture that you know, I think people can feel quite vividly when they can find both. Everyone starts with the former, obviously, but you want to get to the place where meditation actually doesn't even seem like something you're doing. It's, it's actually something you're ceasing to do. Yes, and I would say ceasing to do because we've been trained in the West to do. That seems to be the Western motto, mm -hmm. you know, the those pictures, the posters that we have of the the women in headscarves from World War II with their, you know, showing their biceps saying basically the just do it or whatever the slogan is. That's what we've been trained is to grit our teeth, to white knuckle it, you know, whether it's trying to lose weight or quit smoking or pay attention to our breath. And this is really quite the opposite. And our, our neuroimaging studies were showing just this. They were showing this, this dichotomy where the more we try to meditate, the, you know, the farther we get from the actual meditation practice itself. And in fact, mm. we've even, we just finished a study, we just published a study uh, with an app-based mindfulness training for smoking, where we found that we could target that specific brain region, the posterior cingulate cortex, with app-based mindfulness training, and that that targeting specifically decreased activity in the posterior cingulate cortex in people who are aiming to cut down or quit smoking. And that decreases in that brain activity specifically predicted the likelihood that the people would cut down or, or quit smoking. And mm. so here we're seeing a direct link between you know, mindfulness training, even delivered through an app, targeting a specific brain region leading to tangible clinical outcomes. Yeah, so what is the cessation rate in smoking for the normal therapy and for, for mindfulness-based? therapy? It depends on the study you look at. But in general, with nicotine replacement, which is the most commonly used treatment, depending on what type of study you look at, it ranges from zero to 20%. <laughs> so, 
So it's mm-hmm. a pretty wide range with the mm-hmm. best, uh, probably the, uh, I would say just based on efficacy numbers, uh, varinicline is a medication that is a partial agonist for the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, and so w- which just means it, it activates it to some degree, but also blocks other molecules from binding. So if somebody smokes a cigarette and they're taking varinicline, the nicotine doesn't induce that that dopamine hit, basically, that they would get right. otherwise. And that gives about a 33% quit rate at six to 12 months. So let's say range, you know, range for medication is zero to, say, 33%. We, in our first study of mindfulness training for smoking cessation, we got a 31% quit rate at four months mm-hmm. after people had started using the program. So we didn't compare it directly to medications, but we're in the same ballpark as medications with our first study. That was pretty encouraging to us. And mm. the other piece is that we've been able to really identify what the behavioral mechanisms are. Again, reward-based learning is based on rewards. So what we help people do is really pay attention to how rewarding or not rewarding a cigarette tastes and smells like and what the smoke feels like going into their lungs. And people find that, wow, you know, cigarettes don't actually taste very good. I remember a guy coming in Mm. who'd been smoking 40 years. So he'd basically reinforced this process mm, 300,000 times, give or take 10,000. And he looked completely baffled. He said, I can't believe I didn't notice this before because he really hadn't been paying attention to the reward. Now, from a neuroscientific standpoint, this makes sense because habit learning is set up to help us learn things, chunk that information for easy retrieval so that our brain doesn't need to go through the whole process of relearning it in the future. Because if we had to do that every day, you know, it'd be exhausted by noon because we'd have to relearn everything. So habit formation is helpful. But for something like this, when somebody learned the reward of smoking when they were 13 and smoked to be cool or to rebel or whatever, you know, 40 years later, it's a whole different ballgame. They just hadn't updated that reward value. So here, mindfulness helps them really start to see what the actual value is now. So that gives their brain updated and accurate information so that if it's not as rewarding, then that reward value drops and it becomes much easier to change a behavior. And the same is true when something is more rewarding than once noticed. So for example, bringing in curiosity when we're learning to meditate, when we can actually focus on that joy that comes with investigation, that in itself is rewarding enough to help keep our mind from wandering. And that's even what I found myself when I was learning Mm -hmm. certain types of absorptive concentration practices. Yeah, well, this is how you can discover that there's really no such thing as boredom because once you learn to meditate, you recognize that boredom is just a failure to pay attention. Just with a modicum of curiosity, you know, in this case, even curiosity as to what boredom actually is. How do you even know you're bored? You know, it bites its own tail and you recognize if you just pay attention to anything, any arbitrary object, the breath or anything else, with sufficient focus, then boredom completely evaporates. But this insight into the the dissatisfaction, even in satisfaction, is interesting because, it, unfortunately, we don't have good words to talk about the kind of happiness 
or the kind of well-being that one is targeting in the practice of meditation, or at least the words we have sound a little boring. <laughs> you know, when you talk about tranquility or equanimity or serenity or peace, most people don't go through life thinking that they want those things. There's a sense, I think, that the activation of the dopamine system needs to somehow always be involved in our securing our purchase on happiness moment to moment. And, and I, th I think there's confusion around what happiness or, or well-being actually is and how it relates to transitory mental states like excitement uh, or even joy. So, you know, I just push that all to your side of the table. What, how do you think about these things? Yeah, I think we've certainly been trained in our modern consumerist society <laughs> to be to think that, you know, excitement is what happiness is. Because again, remember, excitement is dopamine motivation. And so it says, oh, look at that new whatever, car, shirt, house, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, go, go get it. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I think this could basically be summed up. Uh, I read a quote from Saida Upandita in his book, In This Very Life, where he said, we mistake excitement of the mind for happiness and don't see the greater joy that comes from, you know, peace and whatever. So I think we can actually simplify this from these terms like tranquility or equanimity that a lot of people may not, let's just say, may not be seeking in a consumerist society. And we can really simplify this, simplify this to language around contraction and expansion or feeling closed and feeling open. Because our brains mm. are, you know, they've already set up that reward hierarchy. And, and my lab's actually doing studies now to confirm this, to show that there actually is a natural hierarchy that we have. So, for example, when we look at the, the clear ones, like fear versus joy, and ask people, which one would you rather have? It's a no-brainer, <laughs> literally. Mm. Their brain says, of course, joy. And we can look at all, a bunch of different words in these two categories of closed versus open. And we find, you know, in pilot studies, we found that uh, universally people would rather have mental states in these open categories versus the closed categories. So closed would be things like anxiety, frustration, whereas open would be like connection or awe or joy or curiosity. And what we're doing now is looking to see how tightly these things couple, how well they're correlated to see if there is actually a clear reward hierarchy set up in the brain. And so here I think we can, there may actually be something already set up that says, you know, what's on the menu, joy or fear? Well, I would rather have another helping of joy, please. But if we look at this, joy and curiosity and connection and kindness, all of these fall in the spectrum of moving in a more open, toward more open mind states, for, for lack of a better mm -hmm. way of putting it. And we see this in our neuroimaging studies. We've had people get into flow, like spontaneously drop into flow and report this when they're in the real-time neurofeedback setup that we have in our, in our fMRI scanner. And it's, that's when their posterior cingulate like just bottoms out, where it just gets really, really deactivated. And for those that aren't familiar with flow, like this guy, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi was a psychologist who described flow back in the 70s as selfless, effortless, <laughs> timeless. 
So all these dualistic concepts kind of fall away as we move from a contracted state of being into a more open, 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 where we lose a sense of where we end and the rest of the world begins. And so we could suggest that that even is starting to move into non-dual territory. So we're even seeing the, mm. a beautiful correlation between people's subjective experience where there might be this reward hierarchy that says, you know, I'd, I'd rather be in flow, for lack of a better way of putting it. And that actually lines up with these brain regions that are involved in self. As we start to lose a sense of that experiential sense of self, that brain region, the posterior cingulate gets quieter and we move in experientially into this territory where we lose a sense of, of self and, and start to connect more with the rest of the world. What are the prospects of neurofeedback going forward? I mean, so you, just to give people a clearer picture of what you did in your lab, you ran a bunch of experiments where you were doing real-time neuroimaging so, and, and reporting the data back to the people in the scanner so people could see the activity go up or down in various regions of their brain, and in this case, the posterior cingulate, and that was being targeted as the, the reporter of successful meditation, essentially. And this is novel because normally in a, in a neuroimaging experiment, it takes quite some time to crunch the data and get the statistical maps of changes in activity, whereas you're reporting this in, in a matter of seconds. But what, what was the latency between the you know, acquisition and reporting it back to the, the person in the magnet? So we could actually do all of the processing in less than half a second. Uh, we had some pretty smart wow. people working on this. This is when That's I was crazy. At, at Yale. That's awesome. Yeah, this guy is Xenius Papademetris and, uh, and a graduate student, Dustin Shinost, pioneered some really fast technology to be able to put this together. Obviously, this is an, a very expensive neurofeedback device, right? You need a three or four or five million dollar magnet and um, an EEG setup and you need technicians running it for you. So what are the prospects of our getting some smartphone-based device that actually gives us usable neurofeedback that makes the practice of targeting specific mental states or uses of attention easier? I would say, so the mental states piece is a little more challenging, but we can certainly start to target specific brain regions which hasn't, you know, certainly not commercially available now. But we've gone from mm -hmm. fMRI, which is, you know, it's about a million dollars per Tesla of, of magnet strength. So it's, you know, like $3 million <laughs> magnet down yep. to an EEG headset, which is about $80,000. And anybody that wants to see how this works, we actually had Anderson Cooper come in and do a piece for 60 minutes where we hooked him up and had him meditate. So they can just find that on YouTube or yeah. whatever. And how many leads do you need on EEG these days? So we, we did 128, and now I have an applied physicist in my lab who's been able to work that down to about 32. And below mm -hmm. 25 or so, the signal quality drops precipitously. So I would say safely, we can do this with 32 leads. And we've now done double-bind studies showing that this is the case. The next step is really for headset manufacturers to come up with good, you know, non-noisy leads that can be customized to be placed in a certain configuration so that we can do good source-estimated neurofeedback. And I think 
you know, that within the next couple of years, uh, we're going to see that uh, at least in beta testing stage, we, we've got the, mm. the software technology and now it's a matter of uh, the hardware manufacturers to, to take that next step. Yeah. And hopefully you don't have to put conductant on the leads so that, you know, you have to wash your hair every time you use your meditation cap. Yes. So but you, I'm surprised you actually still need 32 leads, even though you know you're targeting the posterior cingulate? To get a good, accurate signal. I mean, it's a deep brain region. It's in the middle, kind of it's a midbrain you know, part in the, toward the back. So yeah. it's, it's not like it's just this little thing right on the surface of the brain. So we have yeah. to, you know, there are a bunch of different parameters that we have to optimize for. And so basically, yes, it still does take 32. If, if you think of it, you know, if, if you've gone backpacking or whatever, you know, and we need, we need more than one peak or something to triangulate off of if we're looking at a map and trying to figure out where in the world we are, literally. With yeah. the brain, the, the terrain is a little more complex. So we need a bunch of different points to basically triangulate from. Do you have any thoughts about how people can make meditation itself a habit and sort of, sort of leverage some of our addictive propensities to acquiring a, a very useful and effortless commitment to just doing it every day? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. If, if it's any indication, so we've done some studies with, with app-based mindfulness training, like for eating and for anxiety and things like this, as a way to really you know, be able to, to capture exactly how much people are practicing if they're engaging with a program and you know, if we can actually correlate this with clinical outcomes. And we've found, you know, if you look at the reduction in suffering as an outcome, for example, we've gotten a 40% reduction in craving-related eating with our Eat Right Now app. And we just finished a study, a randomized control trial with our Unwinding Anxiety app with people with generalized anxiety disorder and got a 63% reduction in anxiety symptoms at two months. So if those are indicators of somebody kind of engaging with the practice and actually benefiting from it, I would say, yes, there is a real possibility here. and. I would say, you know, probably the best place to start is, is really understanding how their mind works. And if we can help people understand how their minds work, then they can learn to work with them. So I actually incorporate, you know, basically dependent origination in, in simplified form, basically teaching people reward-based mm -hmm. learning on the first module of these programs to help people really understand how their minds work. And I'll give a concrete example. I had a patient in my clinic who was referred to me for anxiety. And when he walked in the door, I basically, you know, I was like, yes, you look really anxious. What's the story? Well, this guy was basically had full-blown panic disorder and was terrified of getting in a car accident on the highway. And so we mapped yeah. out his habit loops. You know, that's step one is just to map it out. And so he's like, okay, I have a thought that I'm going to get in a wreck. And then his behavior, he says, so my behavior is to get off the highway and not drive. And then the result is that avoidance that makes him you know, not have to worry that he's going to get in a wreck. So we actually just mapped that out on his first day, his first vi visit with me as a way to help him start to understand this. And then I gave him our unwinding anxiety app and sent it, you know, said, just, just map out your mind. He came back two weeks later 
And he had this big smile on his face and he said, oh, I've lost 14 pounds. <laughs> and I said, I thought we were focusing on helping you work with anxiety. He said, well, I realized all these habit loops. I was actually stress eating as a way to work with my anxiety. And I realized that wasn't very helpful. So here's an example of getting somebody engaged with mindfulness through helping them see clear benefit immediately. And so that clear benefit came from mapping out his mind. You can think of the Buddha mapping out his mind when he was mapping out dependent origination. So long story short, this guy, about after about five or six months, he ended up losing about 80 pounds. But I'm not kidding you. He became an Uber driver because he had mm -hmm. mastered his own anxiety through mapping out his mind and being able to bring in these mindfulness practices. And so to, I think of this as setting good habits, we have to hack this reward-based learning system. And the two pieces there are helping our brains see very, very clearly how unrewarding these old behaviors are. So whether it's overeating or worrying or planning for the 20th time or whatever, not very rewarding, but then also giving them what I think of as the BBO, the bigger, better offer that comes with mindfulness practice itself. So I love curiosity, you know, like bringing that in as a superpower and helping them right in the moment when they're anxious or when they're caught up in a craving to just get curious about what that experience feels like in the moment. And the curiosity itself feels better than the craving. So they've already, they've hacked that system and they've flipped the valence from unpleasant craving to pleasant curiosity. So that's what I would say is a great way for people to start map out their minds, find that bigger, better offer, and then compare it to the old habitual behavior. And then, you know, to their brains, again, it's, it's a no-brainer. They're naturally inclined to move away from something that's painful and towards something that feels better. So do you have any advice for somebody who's, let's say, feeling acute anxiety? Well, let's say they're having a panic attack and they know mindfulness at least is proffered as a, a useful tool here, but you know, they, they're paying attention to the anxiety and you know, the valence is, it just seems intrinsically negative and curiosity is not so pleasant as to you know, counterbalance it in that moment. Do you have any specific instructions for them? How, how should they work with anxiety in the moment? Yeah. So we have this, we have a tool right baked right into our Unwinding Anxiety app that basically walks people into a mindfulness practice. Because like you're pointing out, if somebody's in the middle of a panic attack, that can be really challenging. So if somebody's feeling very anxious, what we have them do is first, you know, ask them, where do you feel it in your body? So it helps them drop into their direct experience because often people are so freaked out, they're stuck in their head and they're worrying, worrying, worrying. So have them drop, where do you feel it most in your body? And then we have them check in and we ask, okay, do you feel it more on your right side or on your left side? They can also do front or back. And the question is, hmm, yeah, hmm, is it on the right side? Is it on the left side of my body? And that helps them because it doesn't matter, but it helps them really drop in and get curious. Like right in that moment, huh, is it more on the right side or is it more on the left side? And that helps them just start to tap into curiosity itself. It might not be, you know, gangbusters, but in that mm -hmm. moment, they're not suffering as much as they were in the previous moment when they weren't curious. And so I use that as a very, very simple 
way to help people get embodied. Yeah, I mean, if you're willing to feel the sensation of anxiety, you can notice that that which feels it, I mean, just consciousness, just awareness itself, isn't confined to the feeling itself. The awareness that feels anxiety is the same awareness that feels joy, right? And the more you can fall back into the intrinsic feeling of that just open space in which, in this case, anxiety is appearing, you can break that sense of identification or, or you know, the pure confinement to the object of consciousness. Yes, I would say, you know, awareness is, is simply awareness. It's aware. And we can even direct that awareness in particular ways. For example, you know, right, left. Or we can also look at subtle aspects of experience like closed or contracted or open and bring that curiosity in and bring that curious awareness right in to whatever our experience is. You know, in any moment, we can be checking with ourselves to see, oh, am I contracting or am I expanding? And mm -hmm. what are the conditions that are leading to contraction so that we can show our brains this, right? Because th it's all about cause and effect, helping our brains see what the effect of whatever the behavior is. And if the behavior is leading to contraction and our brain sees that it's painful, it's going to naturally want to find ways to not be, <laughs> not do that again. It, it becomes disenchanted. And the, and the Buddha talked a lot about disenchantment. In the same way, if we can see the cause and effect relationship with things like kindness or connection or curiosity, we can help our brains clearly see, oh, curiosity, mm, you know, I'll have, a, I'll have some more of that, please. Yeah, well, it, it is locating satisfaction in a slightly different place. I mean, we're, we're not, by tendency, based on this reward-based learning, we're not inclined to notice that the thing we think we want, the thing we're, you know, agitated not to have, the thing we're avidly reaching for and clinging to isn't all that good. It's not actually the basis for the satisfaction. On, so, on some level, what we enjoy is the cessation of the desire, right? The desire is this kind of state of agitation, and its gratification, at least in part, is satisfying because we no longer feel the problem anymore. <laughs> we've, we've been rid of an emergency, and we can just relax until we get tangled in the next desire or yes. reward circuit. Yeah, I think smoking is a great example of that. When we smoke a cigarette, we're relieving a dopamine deficit that we right, have created. Right. Yeah, that's depressing. <laughs> yeah. So where is this going for you in the future, Judd? What, what's your 10 years from now? What, what are you hoping we'll be talking about on this topic? Well, what I hope we'll be talking about is that many fewer people are suffering. That's really been my North Star is, you mm -hmm. know, how can we help people at scale, you know, decrease suffering? Because there's so much suffering that's happening in today's world. You know, and there's so much divisiveness. There's so much, you know, everything that's leading to contraction. So we've looked both neurobiologically to see if we can really discover some of these underlying neural mechanisms so we can create neurofeedback tools to help people get that mental mirror to really touch into the subtle aspects of their experience. You know, am I contracting and not noticing it? Um, what's it feel like when I'm expanding? We don't necessarily need neurofeedback tools to do that. I think we can calibrate on our own experience of, you know, am I feeling contracted? Am I feeling expanded? 
But another way is to systematically help people really understand how their minds work. And there's, you know, just a couple of years ago, an entire new term in medicine emerged called digital therapeutics. And that's just a fancy term <laughs> for delivering evidence-based training or treatments through an app or an online platform. So we'd started playing with this back in 2011 um, when I, you know, I was, I was looking at my window. I was working at the VA hospital, and I noticed that, you know, patients are out in the in the parking lot smoking cigarettes, and they were starting, you know, this is the emergence of the weapons of mass destruction. So, as people smoke, they look at their smartphone, and I realized, wait a minute, you know, people don't learn to smoke in my office. They don't learn to get anxious or overeat in my office. So. I'm actually trying to de deliver treatment out of context, right? And so if you want mm -hmm. to help people change behavior in context, the most efficient way is to help them change that behavior in that context. So that's when we had this idea to, you know, package mindfulness training into app-based training. You have a mindfulness app, so you know what this is all about. Yeah. So the idea is, can we take, you know, we're, we're taking clinical indications. So like smoking and overeating and anxiety and doing randomized clinical trials to see how well we can use the digital therapeutic platform to deliver mindfulness training. And as I mentioned earlier, we're actually getting pretty staggering results. You know, we're getting 40% reduction in craving-related eating with our Eat Right Now app and a 63% reduction in anxiety with our Unwinding Anxiety app. And we're even able to link up app-based mindfulness training with changing brain activity, which predicts clinical outcomes with our smoking program. So what I'd like to see 10 years down the road is that, you know, many of these programs have more evidence base behind them because there are very few out there now that actually have been shown to affect things at, you know, clinically meaningful results in randomized controlled trials. So I think that's the first step is to really develop an evidence base. And then the next step is to start to personalize these things. You know, we, we did a study where we developed basically a modern day personality questionnaire based on this fifth century commentary. You're probably familiar with it, the Vasudhi Maga, the path of purification, mm. where they describe for the first time that I know of, they describe personalized medicine, basically where they would look at how people walked, how they ate, how they slept, how they wore their clothes. And then they would individualize mindfulness practices based on that temperament is what they described. So we basically modernized that to have, you know, modern day questions around those things and validated a measure where we can actually get that basic, let's just call it personality type. And then the idea would be to you know, at baseline, be able to personalize training based on somebody's tendencies to see if we can optimize their ability to get into the practices. But then as they progress through practices, optimize every step of the way, uh, their ability to utilize the practices by adapting them based on what is needed. So mm. I think, you know, digital therapeutics aren't going away. So let's, you know, let's bring some evidence base there. Let's then you know, take that to the next level where we can personalize these digital therapeutics and then potentially, you know, bring this together with neurofeedback. But again, I think as, as we start to train ourselves to really understand our own experience, the neurofeedback may not even be the, the most critical element here.
it's fun. (laughs) Everybody loves to look at their brain activity. And that can be tremendously helpful for people, but I don't know if it's necessary. Well, Judd, it's great to get you here. And um, I think people will want to find out more about what you're doing. Where can they find you online? I have a totally self-referentially named website (laughs) called drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com. They can go there if they want to have more. We have a bunch of free resources on there and um, more information about the apps that we have for eating and anxiety and smoking, as well as my book. Um, So that's probably a good place to go. Great. Well, thank you so much, Judd. Thanks for having me.